Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is called Virtue, Passion, and Owning Your Desire, originally produced and published by Nate Bagley. We hope you enjoy the episode. I just got engaged, yeah. and my, um, my fiancé is subscribes very much to what most people are exposed to in any culturally conservative society, which is like a huge emphasis on purity and sanctity and and virtue and chastity and, and and kind of an erroneous and extreme version of what that stuff means, which you're obviously super familiar with. And then my sister just got engaged a few weeks after I did and she is the exact same way. And I, I see like I've, I'm fortunate enough to be close enough to, or open enough with both of them that we've been able to have some really great open conversations yeah. and talk about that right. that kind of perspective. Um, right. So I just really love the work that you're doing because yeah. I think it's hugely needed. And when I yeah. see, I wonder what would have happened or what will would happen if my sister or my fiance, like selfishly, didn't have me. Yeah. To have those force them to have those conversations. Right. Um, Absolutely. Just yeah, it's very hard because. Basically, what it is is we offer women in Mormonism and in many conservative religions the idea that there's two there's two forces at play. There's sexual conservatism and then there's patriarchy. Mm-hmm. I don't think sexual conservat sexual conservatism can undermine people's relationship to sexuality, but I don't think that's nearly as problematic as patriarchal sexual conservatism because basically what it is is sexuality gets constructed in reference to male sexuality not women's sexuality inclusive. And so women are basically given an identity that's not sexual. So the emphasis on purity, it's a way of forging your sense of being a good person is to deny a fundamental part of being human. Then you go get married, and now you're supposed to be accommodating him because that's how you've been told to do it. And so women will put out, so to speak, Mm -hmm. because they don't want him to be unhappy with her, but that's very different than I have a sense of my sexuality and I want to share myself with you in this way. Right. And so that transition is really fundamentally the work of moving from an accommodating disownership to a sense of wholeness that includes being sexual and shifting the relationship from being hierarchical to really partner and peer. Instead of I'm doing this for you, I'm doing this for us and for myself. Yeah, exactly. That I, I want, this is something God has given me, I want a relationship with this capacity that is mine. Um, and then I want to be comfortable enough with my sexuality that I am it, being intimate with you is to share myself with you. It's not like, oh, here's your prize, <laughs> which right. many women think of it as, as like sort of access to this part of me. It just, it breaks down so quickly that, you know, people often immediately after the wedding night kind of like, I hope not to do much of that, you know. Why? Why does because, it break down so quickly? Because, well, for, for, for some women, there's multiple women's, multiple, women, multiple reasons. One is that that identity around virtue has now been ruptured. Right. And so even though it's legitimate, <clears throat> they now feel like this sort of important part of my identity, it even made me feel desirable when I was in the dating um, stage of my life that I was like this sort of virtuous, inaccessible person. And so it felt good. You could feel men's desire. You could feel that they wanted you. It was sexually validating, but you didn't need to be sexual, right? So you, it was like, in many ways, for many women, that feels kind of like a powerful, good position. Now you get married, and not only have you now lost that sense of untouchability, which can feel great on some level, you now feel like now I'm supposed to accommodate him. Uh-huh. Now I don't get to really belong to my sense of separateness. Now I'm supposed to do this. Now he feels sort of entitled to my body. And so not only is there sort of an identity shift that's really challenging, it's also now getting reframed not around belonging more deeply to a part of myself. You know, now that it's legitimate in marriage, now I'm going to really belong to myself in a, in a better way. It's, oh, now I don't have any legitimacy around saying no. And so it becomes about an accommodation and managing this guy and his hedonism, and it becomes really an act of kind of placating, not of intimacy. Mm. And the resentment grows quickly on both sides because he feels like, you know, 
I don't feel like your heart's here. You're just man, you're giving me mercy sex. I thought, I, you know, I hold it together till I get married. We'd have sex for eternity. That's what I thought. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and she's feeling resentful because she feels like, you know, how long do I have to do this? And, how, you know, and it's just, well, and then the third factor, I think, is that women, if there were to be any kind of imbalance, I think sexuality in most of the marriages I work with is male-centric. It's just very much... I mean, it's not just the guy's fault. They've been socialized into that frame, so has have the women. But it's a frame that does not work because women's sexuality is much more internal. It takes a lot more to... Women are highly erotic. If, if, if I had to say who's more sexual between men and women, I would say women have more sexual capacity than men do. But they're pickier and they're slower to... They're tracking as much sexual stimuli in the environment as men are and are arguably more turned on by sexual stimuli than women. Their bodies are, are responding to it, whether or not they will acknowledge register that or turn it. that, register it into I want. But in order to actually choose or say, I want this, they are much slower, and there's lots of psychobiological reasons and social reasons for that. But, but my short message is that if you have to have an imbalance, it needs to be towards women, that men are in the service of women's eroticism. When that's happening in marriage and both people will allow it, then fantastic sex is happening. <laughs> so give me an idea of like what that transition looks like from the more patriarchal sex sexuality to... Um... Well, first of all, the wedding night is often pretty patriarchal in, in the sense that, especially for two virgins, okay, right. it's painful for her... Climaxing with intercourse, only a third of women even do in the first place. And so most men and women who are getting married in that frame are thinking, this is sex, right. intercourse. And this guy who's so excited, okay, but both the anxiety and the excitement, you know, make it easy for him to orgasm, often too easy at first, okay? Right. But, you know, it takes about two minutes, and he's, <laughs> he's orgasm. And she's like, wait, what would, you know, for the hurt... I, I didn't get any pleasure out of that. Right. Because intercourse isn't the way to pleasure for most women. Right. And so, um, and so for many men, they, they kind of, well, there's two pieces at play. One is there's this sort of structural realities of that, that you have to really understand a woman's body and a woman's psychology to know how to access her sexual self. Uh-huh. And intercourse is not going to be the way. Okay, <laughs> I mean, intercourse can be a great part of sex for heterosexual couples, right? I'm not, but I, it it, it but has to so be much more to so it. So much more to cultivating eroticism in a couple. But what we're culturally taught to expect is that that is sex. Essentially, sticking yeah. a man's penis inside a woman's vagina is what's sex that's what is. sex is, and right? There's like an infinite volumes no. of more right, as opposed to sort of sexually expressive and exposed ways of being together, having intimate contact and pleasure together, if we call that sex, right. well, then I guess you'd say a lot more single Mormons are having sex. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's one reason why we're very focused on it. And I understand for reproductive purposes and disease purposes, there's reasons why that's an important line. But that certainly isn't the sort of height of women's sexual experience. Um, the other thing is that when men are taught that they need to be on top, in a sort of psychological sense, that they're the leaders, that they're the ones who are in charge. Men will often look for women who they think can slide underneath them emotionally and sexually. They don't really want to have an equal because to have an equal and to really be sexual with a woman in a way that gives the message that you see her as an equal is to challenge your own sense of selfhood as not needing to be on top. And many men would rather dumb down the sexuality that they're offering and have a woman who looks sexually deficient than really tolerate the depth of a woman's eroticism. Yeah. Yeah. So what is... Okay, so now that you kind of set up the problem, yeah. that, like, that's a great introduction. Honeymoon, yeah. honeymoon night, somebody who's been raised in a very conservative... I mean, we're basically talking about me in a lot yes. of ways. Uh-huh. I'm engaged. I'm going on my honeymoon in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, Granted, I've done a lot of preparation and yeah. thinking More about this. More knowledgeable than some people are, yeah. Uh, but for, for people out there who are in a similar situation, um, what's a way that you... Like, if you could paint a picture or give an example of what a transition like that from maybe a more traditional, culturally male-dominated sex honeymoon yeah. 
what would the transition from that to like a more feminine sexuality be like? So it's a, there's a lot to answer in that. Um, I'm sure there is. I'm, so I'm talking just, to you. Yeah, it's a very it good us. question. I mean, I guess what I would say is that the work I'm doing with a lot of couples is around exposing to them the way that they have co-constructed mm-hmm. the man and the woman a marriage with a hierarchy in it. And there's an upside for women in that too. You know, if I can go find somebody who's going to lead me and have the answers and be the strong one, I can just sort of fold into his reality and find a sense of safety there. And I don't have to take as much responsibility for my own development. And I don't have to take as much responsibility for being a whole person or dealing with how I feel about me. And it's a bit the Cinderella position, right? Like I can look to you to caretake me, make me feel valuable, make me feel desirable, right? And so a lot, this is not just about men doing this to women. Women also actively participate in it. But of course, as a very short half-life starts breaking down, the resentment starts growing on both sides. So I think what one of the things you have to really look at is, are you really prepared to be married to an equal as a man? And are you prepared, woman, okay, to the female, are you prepared to actually start taking responsibility like an equal? Mm. Because if you're really going to have... a a sexual relationship worth wanting, you have to function like an equal within that relationship. You have to see your sexuality as being on par with a man's. Your sexual desires and interests on par. Your desires and interests in general on par. Okay, like in a marriage. And for many people, that is like, what? You know, I'm here to follow. I'm here to yield. That's how I express my goodness. And... So it does mean a paradigm shift, and oftentimes people that are getting married have no interest in that paradigm shift because they just found their prince, and they're, they're expecting, that's what they want, and they want the safety that it, it offers them. But it's when people start being so um, happy in their marriage and so depressed in their life and feel so much like, you know, the happiest married people have a strong sense of belonging to themselves while they're married. Yeah. Not this, you know, folding into another person. And so, but it takes, it, it takes a sense of real pressure on your own development to really hold that in the context of a marriage, to be willing to value what you care about also. And so I think sometimes it takes until somebody's unhappy enough in their marriage to really look at how they've self-betrayed or how they've pressured the other person down and to start growing up and growing into a more mature form of love into what what I think real love is I I certainly understand how we create these hierarchies it's around needing and needing to be needed and wanting the security of those positions but if you don't grow out of them you'll stay unhappy and the sex will suck too <laughs> yeah it's great and so so the movement out is really around is around challenging hierarchy within the marriage and within yourself you know, women are often saying things like, I feel so, you know, devalued and I feel just like, you know, he treats me like an object. But where I often push them is the way that they collude in being treated like an object. Right. The way they also well, What are you responsible for in that relationship that has yeah. allowed him to do that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's your role in this? Well, right. haven't you said the, the boundary and have you have you tried to set the boundary that this yeah. isn't the role I want to play? Yeah, and, and you don't like that he doesn't take your sexual interest seriously, but you aren't taking your sexual interest seriously. Right. You aren't talking to him about what you want either. Right. And so... So it does mean, you know, kind of pushing people to kind of deal with who they want to be and... What they're created, what they've created in their marriage, and, and where they want to go from there. So, so it is developmental, and it's not pathological so much. It's more where people kind of come into marriage with the tools they've been offered or the paradigms they've been offered, and they do their best with it. And right. when when they kind of come into a kind of a gridlock, that's often where they're open to taking a different look at who they've become. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I've even heard, I'm just trying to think now within the context of my own life, how all of this applies. And like one of the, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I've heard for, like if you you said two virgins coming together, two sexually inexperienced people coming together Mm -hmm. and saying that they're going to venture into this new territory Mm -hmm. of sexuality together. Mm -hmm. Um, Even taking intercourse off the table for the honeymoon as a necessity. 
Um, I would not do it till she's begging you for it. <laughs> really. Yeah. Because I get, you know, some people, you know, um, have more experience, even just sensual experience before they get married. Mm-hmm. Meaning Mormon couples do, that they have kind of allowed themselves a certain amount of exploration. And so they might be more in a position to go straight to intercourse or, or soon after. But I think depending on how limited the experience is, just spending time, like, pleasuring, getting comfortable being naked together, mm-hmm. getting being comfortable just sort of like saying, I like how that feels. And, you know, I and allowing the sort of erotic tension and energy to build and kind of taking expectations of orgasm off the table and just kind of allowing, you know, that cultivation of that tension. Yeah. You know, we're so goal-focused in Western society and a lot of what tantric practices are talking about is that the real pleasure in life is in the erotic tension of life. It's in the not ever, you know, basically the climax is death. You know, you don't want life to climax. You want to always be in that sort of creative, seeking, pursuing tension. That's what is both frustrating and makes you feel alive. Right. It's, that, it's that living in that tension well that you live well. And it's very much true in couples that are happily married is that they are cultivating that tension a lot, but not gratifying quickly. They allow the desire to build mm-hmm. and not gratify. They allow, And so when it's like two minutes into the honeymoon, and you know, I mean, I know couples where like in between the marriage and the reception, the guys yeah. are, and, and it's just so disappointing. <laughs> because they miss out on all the eroticism yeah. and the tension and the build up and the, yeah. and yeah. Right. And I mean, I'm not, you know, I have no, no critique if the woman's like, let's go back to the hotel, I'm dying to try right. it. But if it's driven by he knows what he wants and he's not paying attention to what this means to her, right? Uh, I mean, it's killing it on multiple levels. Not yeah. only because you did two minutes isn't enough for her, but it's giving the message right up that how your experience is secondary to mine. Right. And that's not a good message. So, so let me kind of turn the table just a little bit yeah. and ask you a question I've been really curious about. So mm-hmm. let's say you've got a... Um, because I, I've heard several stories like this and it breaks my heart. Yeah. Uh, women who have been married for you know several years decades even and have never experienced orgasm yeah how would you approach a conversation like that and yeah like what what advice would you give to a couple who maybe is coming to the realization that their sex life is not what yeah even close to what it could have yeah been or she well so i guess what i would be talking to her about first is does she want to have an orgasm and a lot of times women would say yes of course that's why i'm here but then I'd ask, well, why do you want to have one? I mean, what, what is in it for you? What's the interest? Because a lot of times it's like, I want to be less defective, mm. and I want to be enough for him, and I am measuring myself against this reflex in my body, and it's just a paradigm that's designed to fail. Right. Because then you feel pressure, and you feel stress, and yeah. especially the way a woman's sexuality is designed, pressure and stress are like... Antithetical. Yeah. Antithetical to it. And... Exactly. It's not coming from the paradigm of, like, I want to belong to myself. I want to really belong to sexuality that is mine and always has been mine, and I've been terrified to develop it. And I've been terrified to actually lay claim to it. Because that's what I'll start talking to them about. Because a woman's not going to have an orgasm. It's unlikely she's going to have it, and it's unlikely it's going to be a positive sort of grounding experience for her if she isn't clear about the fact that this is about belonging more deeply to herself. Mm And so I also would really recommend that if you've never had an orgasm, that a woman does it on her own, okay? And I know this, this can be a really taboo topic for people that are more conservative sometimes, right. sexually conservative. But even in the paradigm of this is about blessing the marriage ultimately, that I do need to know how to belong to myself to be able to be a whole person in the marriage. Yeah. And this is important for the sake of our couplehood. Okay, yeah. so even in that frame, it, and it is important, and, and having an audience is often too much anxiety. The third thing I would say is not only shifting that paradigm and having some privacy around this is about belonging to yourself, but the way that you are with yourself, uh, you can think of it in terms of really loving yourself, not this sort of, you know, what's the word, like imperious judge that's you know, what's your problem? Why can't you orgasm? Other women can. Why, you know, right. <laughs> that's what's in many women's heads. And like, yeah. oh, no shocker yeah. that you're not having an orgasm. You've got and you're this, not like, a very good narrator. That's like the, yeah. the, the ultimate critical yeah. person. And you're not a very good lover to yourself either. Right. I mean, can you imagine your husband saying that to you? 
I mean, so you see, like, you need to be kind to yourself and say, I, I, I'm a woman because I have the courage to expand myself. That defines me. Not whether or not this reflex in my body happens that I have no control over. Yeah. And so really around looking at one's relationship to oneself, even in the process of developing one's sexuality, is really important work. It reminds me of the, the second great commandment, love others as you love yourself. Exactly. And we always leave the as you love yourself part out. Right, because we think that, that somehow the, 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 the defective right. part as opposed to no, this is about compassion right. to self and others. That's what Christ taught. Yeah, and we often say, oh, well, others should take the precedence over ourselves. But like no. the instruction is you love others as you love yourself. Yes. And I think as has two good definitions. One is like um, in the way that yes. you love. Yes. So you love others in the way that you love yourself. Yes. and you love others at the same time, yes. like during the time Absolutely. you love yourself. And because when we won't take <clears throat> care of ourselves, basically the, the fantasy is that somehow we're being selfless and this is blessing everybody else's life. But in reality, if you won't manage yourself, you pressure everyone else to manage you. Yeah. You know, many people listening to this will know, like of having a mother who never felt happy, who never really developed herself, who always felt a kind of you know, neediness and anxiety and the kids feel it and they're constantly trying to like sort of manage their mother's sense of self. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't take a hold of yourself and live a life you respect, you'll suck the life out of everybody around you, yeah. which is very, very selfish in the name of selflessness. Yeah, it's really interesting. I feel like we're all, it's easy to be addicted to a martyr mentality Absolutely. where your job is to take care of everybody else right. and not, never take care of yourself. Right. And then you never have any energy or, right. or capacity right. to like feel good about yourself. Right. And what I would even say, I was in a session yesterday, and somehow we were talking <clears throat> about this person's martyrdom. And suddenly, you know, because he would do these very entitled things, he'd go and, you know, hire prostitutes that his wife didn't know. So he'd go do these very entitled things, but in the marriage was doing all this kind of martyrdom and whatever you want kind of stuff. And it just suddenly occurred to me as I was talking to him, being a martyr is not a selfless position. <laughs> it's pretty basic, it's selfish, but yeah. it's extremely entitled position. It's like, I'm not going to take responsibility for my desires. I'm not going to be honest and straight up about what I want, but I'm going to demand that you figure it out and give it to me. And I'll resent you enough if you don't that I'll go do what I want on the side. Okay. So it's a very, very, even if you're not off doing, you know, horrible things on the side just right. the idea that people owe me my sense of self isn't it how interesting how easy it is to take something that a principle that is so good and twist it into something that's yeah. so selfish well we're very good at that as yeah like the, the golden <laughs> rule is another great example yeah. where like treat other people the way you want to be treated yeah and then there's this i see it i, I do this yeah where i treat somebody nicely hoping that they will treat me that same way right. with the expectation that they will treat right. me that same way and then i become resentful when they don't treat me that same right. way and i'm like well, I held the door open for you. Why didn't you hold the door open for me? Right, you know? exactly. And I'm doing the golden rule. I'm yeah, like you. Yeah. yeah. Why didn't you give? Why didn't you give me what I wanted? I treated you the way I want to be treated. Why didn't you pick up on it and treat me the way I right, showed exactly. you? And like all of a sudden, this beautiful rule of selflessness and and giving sure. turns into this manipulative like absolutely just human beings are loaded. Very, we're so good at doing that. Yeah. We're so good at finding the kind of path of least resistance that allows us to not have to develop. Yeah and actually learn what I think Christ was teaching, which is the hard way yeah. of really forging, you know, offering goodness in the face of evil, offering good, metabolizing hard things and still doing what is respectworthy and good. That takes strength, Courage. and we're very good at not doing it. <laughs> and my other favorite version of the golden rule, which is like, it's like I saw it on a bumper sticker, it was like karma. It's knowing at night that all of the all of the mean things I did to people all day that they had it coming to them. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, it's such a complicated thing to navigate, all yeah. of this stuff. And it's really interesting how we justify, like, how we can we can sit on a pedestal and think that we're behaving one way and doing something that's so good when in reality we're being so selfish. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I love the way how, the, how you brought up the importance of growth and progress. Yeah, um, exactly. I feel like uh, one of my one of my favorite quotes from a couple that I interviewed back several about two years ago, <clears throat> Terry Schenzel said, uh, "I'm going to paraphrase, but she basically said your sex life is a reflection of your marriage. Yes, and the problems that you experience in your yes. sex life are a reflection of the problems that Absolutely. you experience in your marriage. Yes, if you're like if you're scared to, you know, show up naked in front yes. of your partner." 
there's obviously a vulnerability issue within yes. your marriage as a whole. That's or right. You know, it, exactly. An issue around selfhood and, you know, right. David Schnarch's work, I've done a lot of you work with lot, him. Yeah. Lot, yeah. And he talks a lot about this is that in, that in sex, you're always communicating who you are and, and how you will relate to the other person, just as you're doing it in life. But you can't help but communicate it because who you are is showing up. So to your example, if you're somebody who feels insufficient, mm-hmm. you're going to have sex like a person who, who feels insufficient. Right. You know, either you're trying to apologize for who you are, you're trying to mask how much they see you, you're trying to keep it all about them so that they hopefully don't notice you too much, you know. And so really the issues around self-development are so much at play in the way that we're married and the way that we are intimate and... You know, it's such a sex is such a powerful way of being in relationship with another person, and such a, a potentially exposed way that it really one of the reasons that passion breaks down so quickly in marriage and so often in marriage is because that person you're with knows too much. You know, they really, really know you. It's very different than passion. You know, that's that has tons of fantasy being projected onto this person you just met. Right. Because you can make them exactly who you want them to be, and it doesn't really matter who they are. Because yeah. you don't have to deal with that yet. But in a long-term marriage, you have to really deal with who you are. Yeah. And so often that breaks down desire because either you don't like the person you're with, or you don't like who you are, or both. And it's getting it's getting expressed in the sexual intimacy. And so it does pressure us to deal with who we are. That's really interesting. And then, right on the flip side, if you if you avoid the growth and the progress and avoid kind of evolving into a new and better version of yourself, there's very little new that you can get to know, your partner can come to know. Right, And right. the foundation of desire is wanting something that you don't have. Yes, and right, you novelty. Can't, yeah, you can't, have, you can't want something that you already possess. And so if you've created this, this relationship where yeah. there's no novelty and yes. you're having the same conversations over and over yes. and you're never confronting yes. the sticky parts, yes. then of course you're going to lose the right. fantasy and lose the... the yes, the yeah, passion, the, the passion. interest. Because people are so good at flattening who they are yeah. to keep it safe and to not be seen. Safe is the enemy of passion. Absolutely. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. You mentioned something a little bit earlier that I really liked about creating as a couple, like creating your relationship together. Yeah. Um, what would you say are some really great pointers for a couple to create a really healthy sex, sex life or sexuality with each other? Um... So I would say... I know each case is a little bit different. Yeah, I'm just trying to think how to like make it's it It's hard to come up with like universal efficient. rules. But see, what I would say is what you're communicating is way more important than technique. Who you are is way more important than technique. Um, you know, I'll hopefully... Okay to say this, but I'm married to yeah. somebody who the way he touches me, I feel how much he loves me. Mm-hmm. I feel how much he likes me, and I feel likable because of who I have been in the marriage too. And so, it's like who wouldn't want that? You know, if that's sex worth wanting, because I mean, perhaps he has great technique, but I, I don't. Know, it's not even really about that. I know what he means. I know what he's saying to me, and and um, it's also expressed in the interest in who I am and the interest in what speaks to me and what I like. And it's real, it matters to him. It's not just like, how do I give her enough pleasure so she wants to do this again for me, right? right. right? And so, so when somebody is really communicating, I am invested in you, and the person on the receiving side feels worthy of being invested in, right, and can receive that kind of message, which is also a part of it, then the, the natural development of sexual capacity will happen because you like showing up there you like exploring together you like being with that person so I think this issue and it's a lot what I talk about in my courses and things is really dealing with who you are and really dealing with who you are as a couple and the ways that you can take safety in these ways that work against your passion work against your authenticity work against your development in the ways that you sort of lend lend dependency to the other person or I'm trying to think of a better way to say it, where you go blind to yourself and the other person colludes in that, and it allows you to to um, 
basically not have to keep growing and you can use the marriage to not grow. Mm. So it's not only dealing with who you are, it's not using the marriage to stunt development, which most of us do on some level. Right. We like being comfortable. <laughs> we want safety. We really do. Yeah. So I think that thinking, that's probably the number one message is thinking about who you are and what it is you're communicating in the way that you're sexual. And then I think this issue of ownership of sexuality and really seeing it as um, a very important part of being human, a very fundamental part of living a joyful life and not this sort of necessary evil or this, you know, this thing that'll take you down. I think a lot of sexually conservative groups uh, will construct sex as sort sort of Satan's way into your heart as opposed to Sex is a powerful way of being in relationship, and if you have, if you're someone who's willing to take advantage of other people, doing it with sex is a particularly corrosive way. But the problem is not sex; the problem is the person being sexual. Right. And so we have to stop seeing sex as the problem, as opposed to how you are sexual is the issue. Right. And so, um, so uh, I, I kind of lost where I what I was. Heading somewhere and I kind of lost that. That's okay. I agree. Yeah. So yeah. So I think so. So I think that's oh, self, <clears throat> sexual self acceptance. I right. think is the other goal. And then this issue of of living, learning how to really live erotically with another person that you are with all the time, and that is to say you never see them. You don't flatten them into the image of you that makes you comfortable. You know that that's what we fall in love with. Is you reflect back to me the way I want to see myself, and I really love you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Right? Exactly, exactly. And then you start getting married. I can live for the rest of my life with somebody who sees me this way. Oh, exactly. It's like finally somebody gets it how great yeah. I am. You know? And of course, that starts to break down once you move in together, and and then they start wanting different things, and they actually think when you do that's pretty annoying, and they're right, and all that. And so I think that when you insist on living that way. I just want someone who narcissistically reinforces me. You're going to have terrible sex. You're going to have a horribly unerotic life. And that's what some people think they want. Oh, absolutely. Like they, they desperately do. cling to that. Donald Trump would be one. <laughs> Sorry, you can edit that out. No, I'm not get political edit that. About That's it. totally fair. But this is somebody who's basically, you know, very clear. He wants. He he loves people that reflect back to him the image that he wants of himself, and he will not be challenged. Okay. And if you do challenge him, he'll mm-hmm. bust out his tiny little hands and. Mm-hmm come after you that's exactly right yeah so he's a small hand guy <laughs> so um, so it's um so I think that you know if you're not willing to take the hit and deal with who you are and then really see the other person I mean I think about this all the time my husband does not belong to me he chose to be with me it's a great and he gift. still chooses to be he with chooses you. me every day and it's remarkable oh, and he's his that. own person and he is both a wonderful person that I do feel a, a strong sense of security with because I know him and I see who he is. But there's always mystery there too. Yeah. Because he's his own person. And there is no guarantees. You never have anyone. I mean, that, even to think that is to basically insist on seeing things as they are not. Because they could leave you at any time. They could die at any time. You never, ever... I mean, part of sexual passion is this the, the excitement of the merger but never really merging, yeah. never quite having. And it's that tension, it's so gratifying. And so, totally. yeah. I, I had a conversation this last week with, a, with a, just a, a girl who wanted to talk about relationship stuff. And one of the questions she asked was, how can you be sure? Like, how can you be sure that this is the person that's gonna spend the yeah. rest of your life with you? And I'm like, you can't. Yeah, no, you can't. It is literally impossible to be yeah. absolutely sure that somebody right. with, their, with their free agency, their right. free will, is going to wake up and choose you every day. That's right. the beauty The beauty of love. Yep. The beauty of a relationship is the fact that somebody wakes up every day and chooses you, That's and right. they don't have to. That's right. Every day, That's day right. after day after day, and you do the same thing. That's right. And at any moment, you could change your mind and walk away, yep. and like there would be no real, I mean, there would be repercussions, but... But lots of people do it. Yeah, but lots of people do it, uh-huh. and, and they don't. Yep. And that's part of the right. beauty of the mystery right. and mystery right. of, of love. This person puts up with me. It's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, And yeah. the more they get to know me, they still choose to stay. They still stick around. And, and the way to honor marriage is not, hey, you owe me. It's like, look, I'm going to develop myself to make it worth your while. Right. I'm not going to make you sorry that you chose me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful perspective. Yeah. I love that. 
Um, one of the things I love, whenever you talk, I just love your focus on growth and progress. And one mm-hmm. of the things you said the other day that really made it, made a difference for me and for my fiance was that anxiety um, is often a reflection of growth. Yes. And not necessarily that something it's horrible is happening. Yeah, exactly. And I, I can't tell you, I don't know if you've seen a trend lately in people claiming that they have anxiety or that they're really anxious about stuff, uh-huh. but I seem to hear it more and more and more, uh-huh. especially um, with peers who are single, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yes. that, that's dating stresses them out, that they're yeah. always anxious about relationships. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's interesting how many people use that as an excuse to run away yes, exactly. instead of an excuse to, or an excuse that, like, Hey, this is wrong. This yes. isn't right. Instead of reflect, reflecting and realizing that this is pushing me to grow. That's right. And I, the thing I would add to that is there are two forms of anxiety. There's unproductive anxiety and there's productive anxiety. And I tend to think of unproductive anxiety as trying to control things you cannot control. Mm-hmm. Like, what if this person would leave me? What if my child gets kidnapped? You know, I mean, that, that we can fret and expend all kinds of worry over things that we really have no impact on. And often we'll do that to not deal with the things that we do have control over that would push us to grow more. Productive anxiety is to basically say, I'm willing to do things that are hard because I believe that there is a positive, um, um, what's the word I'm going to say, that there will be a positive outcome in the effort, in the stretching, in the seeking to understand and to develop something. Because you're not going to develop anything if you don't feel anxious. Right. My daughter plays the violin, which I bring up sometimes because it's just so concrete. And that is, you know, anytime she starts to learn a new skill, learn, learns a new piece, she has to tolerate the anxiety of not being on the side of mastery. And there's been times where she's like, I can't do it, I can't do it. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and then she just keeps going and going, and then she's on the other side and she's playing it beautifully, and people are like, wow, how do you do that? You know, And, and that's the process right there. Yeah. And so anxiety tolerance is a very important part of development. And I think that's what faith is from a religious frame, is yeah. when we're talking about faith, it's that I'm reaching for something that I don't fully have a handle on, I don't fully understand, but I feel that it's the direction I should be reaching and I'm willing to tolerate the discomfort mm. that that process requires to forge something better in myself or between us or whatever. That's what faith is. It's like seeking goodness and tolerating the discomfort in trying to achieve it. That's really interesting. That it, it reminds me of, a, I, I um, frequent Reddit and there's yeah. a, there's a, a, a forum in, on the Reddit website that's dedicated specifically to sex that I yeah. read a lot. And one lady um, posted this really interesting comment, and she said that she had an orgasm like a while back, and it's completely ruined her, se- her sex life. It was the first time she'd ever experienced orgasm. Hmm. And she's like, it was incredible, and then I couldn't make it happen again. Oh. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know, we found, I found out that I could only have an orgasm when, like, never through penetration and never through, like... I had to be laying in a certain position and it took a while and I could had to relax into it and sometimes my partner would just get exhausted and it would I could tell it wasn't fun for him anymore and his eyes were just wandering and, <laughs> and you know mm-hmm. and she's like I'm so frustrated because now I've experienced this amazing thing and I'm chasing it and I feel like it's ruining our mm-hmm. marriage because I can't reach mm-hmm. it and all these people jumped in and they're like hey no it's okay mm-hmm. like you need to chill out and mm-hmm. give yourself mm-hmm. a break yeah and like it's a practice yes exactly and just because this thing happened for the first time in 10 years of your yeah. marriage. Right. Like, doesn't mean that it needs to happen every time now. Yeah, nor that and it would, nor that it's going to always only be in that way either. You know, right. that basically just pursue pleasure. Right. Pursue what feels good to you. But there's yeah. that, that mm-hmm. violin moment. Of, yes. of like, oh, I, you know, like, yeah. I want it, I want it, I want it. And yeah. I, I got it right that one time. Like, I got yeah. the finger in yeah, the, exactly. on the cord or whatever. And now I can't do it again. And it's, it's so frustrating. Absolutely. And there's this sense of, like, relaxing into it and realizing, hey, right. this is this anxiety I'm experiencing. If I just take a couple deep breaths. Yes. And, like... And chill out a little. I might get the fingering bit. right, so to speak. Yeah, yeah and I can practice over and over until I master it. Yes. Instead of saying, instead of beating myself up uh, like uh, I've done something horrible every time yeah. I don't master it. Yeah, and and this obviously is not a podcast about uh, learning music, but one of the things that I love about the experience of my children learning music is that there is this experience that you basically do things that are hard day after day after day, and miraculously you just get better. Mm-hmm. Because you expose your brain to it, you expose your, you know, you tolerate the anxiety of it, 
and your brain adapts more and more and more. And when we, de when we demand that we're not in a non-mastery state, you never give your brain the chance to master anything. Yeah. And brains are, are wired to master. Right. Their environment. They over are. time. Over time. With practice. Over time. Because basically, it's a survival thing. Your brain needs to adapt to its environment for you to survive. But when we won't expose it to environments that make us anxious, we don't develop. And it's so, so true. I, I, so I went to lunch with a buddy this week. He has a little boy. And he's like, he's been saying one word. Yeah. You know, he's just learning words. And I walked into his bedroom. So I put him to bed Monday night. And then on Tuesday morning, I walked in, and he looks at me and goes, turn it on, and looked up at the light. Uh -huh. And he goes, what did you say? <laughs> he's like, turn it on, and he flips on the light, and his son goes, yay! And he's like, sometime between Monday night when I laid him down and Tuesday morning when he woke up, he <laughs> learned how to put words together yeah. into phrases. Yeah. And he's like, it blew my yeah. mind. Yeah. But that's how it works. Like, you do one word yep. until suddenly you can string a sentence together. That's right. Yeah. And the other thing is it, it wasn't really Monday to Tuesday, even though I understand what he's right, saying. It's, a, right. yeah, it's like all this preparation that's going on when you don't need, when you think, oh my gosh, my, I know, this dad wasn't thinking this, but you right. could be thinking my child's never going to put two words together. What's it? And all yeah. this neurological stuff is going on when you're in an environment that's got words being strung together. And then one day, there it is. And so, again, it's like that's the process of development and being right. patient with it. And, and that's where the healthy anxiety comes in, yes. and that's what, what the progress is all about, is yes. expanding your vocabulary, yes. your sexual vocabulary, yes. if we're going to loop it all the way full exactly. circle. That's exactly right. So that's there's exactly some people right. who are just settled in, and they say, all I want to do is grunt at each other, and exactly. we never really want to learn words, or right. grammar, or syntax. Because I might look like a fool. Right. And so we'll What just, if I say a word wrong? Exactly. So we'll just have this very limited relationship. Right. And at least I'll feel safe. Right. But not really, and that's the other thing, is that those people don't feel safe. They feel anxious all the time right. because they think... Constantly worried they're not they're good enough. Exactly. They're constantly worried they aren't good enough, and frankly, they're kind of right because they haven't developed themselves, and they know that... Oh. They know that, uh, that their spouse may not be interested in them, and they're afraid it might be good judgment, too. Right. Mm -hmm. He might be right, or she might be right. Right. Exactly. We just got a visitor. Do you want me to pause it and have that's him go? Fine. Here, yeah. have him just hang on. <coughs> Where'd you go? That is a beautiful dog. <laughs> I also want to be respectful of your time. How much? We've gone for like 43 minutes. So. Okay, sure. That's fine. Cool. Um, this is fun. Yeah. I enjoy talking to you. Yeah, great. Um, where, where were we? Uh, the anxiety tolerance. Oh, and, and this question oh, right. of whether or not you think your spouse th that you actually do end up having anxiety when you right. develop. You so have, you're you're anxious. You're anxious if you confront the yourself and force yourself to grow, and or you're anxious if you don't and you right. try and stay comfortable. Regardless, right, you're going to be anxious. Right, and that's exactly right. And that's something that Dr. Schnarch talks about is that you don't get a choice in life over whether or not you're anxious. You only get to decide whether or not it's it's productive. Right. And so, and in fact, the more you don't do the productive anxiety, the more unproductive anxiety you're swimming in. It's just sort of everywhere then. And then it just, it just eats away at your life like a cancer. Yeah. And, you know, I've worked, Wolf. I work with clients where, you know, one case I have in mind right now where, you know, she has, she got married a year into college. He had multiple degrees. And, you know, in many respects, it worked fine for what they both wanted. She was at home and so on. But the kids have gotten older, and her sense of being stunted is high, and her fear around changing that is very high. And so how she deals with it is just always trying to pull him down. Mm. And she sees her cruelty, and she, she is confronting it in herself. She doesn't like how she wants to pull him down, but she's so tempted by it to get out of her feeling of inferiority. And to get away from the anxiety, it's right. a way of getting this hit of feeling in control. And so I started, you know, talking to her more openly about this issue of her self development and her responsibility to herself. That if she doesn't forge that, she will have a very hard time really increasing her capacity to love or really having the kind of marriage that she and her heart knows he deserves and that she would like to be able to offer. So. Wow. You know, self-development's a big deal. It's a huge deal. So this is going to be a good way to kind of wrap up this conversation, I think. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have somebody listening to this podcast right now. They know that they want to develop 
a healthier sexual relationship with their partner. They know they want to grow or maybe they're single and they know they want to prepare in that way. What are some questions that they can, what are some, because this, all of this has to do with being able to communicate transparently with your partner. Like if you can't have these conversations about what's working, what's not working, mm-hmm. what you like, what you don't like, mm-hmm. you know, how you can grow, what your deficiencies are, what then talk openly mm-hmm. about that kind of stuff, you're not going to be able to mm-hmm. get there. So what are some good questions or conversations that people can start having with, with their themselves spouse or, or with their partner? Or with their par- um, well, you know, I was talking to my brother and sister-in-law earlier today um, about doing therapy and that, you know, the challenge of being human is that we're so good at self-deception. Yeah. We're so good at narrating our lives in the way that makes us comfortable. We're good. They're bad. You know, I did everything I could. They didn't do anything. Right. And in reality, we're quite um, clueless about who we really are. People see us more clearly than we see ourselves. We have a usually. lot of blind spots. We have a lot of blind spots, and we're much more readable to other people than we want to believe. Um, and, you know, what we have to say about our spouse or our family member, the real deal is we're usually right, you know, about them. And they often are wrong about themselves. So I would say, you know, one of the reasons that I think marriage is a, a, a divine institution is because you have somebody institutionally there to give you feedback about your blind spots. Right. <laughs> Which we all love, of course, when we start getting feedback. Um, but, you know, in reality, if you want to think about, like, what it, I would be asking myself, where do I delude myself? What are the areas in myself that I don't want to deal with? What are the things that I want other people to believe about me, that I'm particularly invested in them believing about me, and why am I invested in them seeing me that way, and does it have anything to do with what I am not dealing with in myself? Right. So I think if you have the courage, one way to look at sort of your limitations is to say, what's hard about being with me? What's hard about being married to me? What's hard about being my sister? What's hard about, you know, that kind of thing? that uh, how, how do you see me? Because if you're willing to look at that with courage, you start seeing yourself in a way that can be sobering, but allows you to really forge more integrity, to actually start dealing with the parts of yourself that are unloving or underdeveloped or difficult, rather than just insisting that everybody feel good about you. So I think um, that's an important co- conversation. I think another important way to challenge yourself is to say, you know, what has been my vision of marriage? Okay, and am I interested in this sort of hierarchical thing? A lot of us need to be needed. Um, or a lot of us are needy and we're hoping somebody's going to take care of it for us. And often those needy people will find somebody who needs to be needed but they're both needy positions you know they're both dependency based positions and so what would it take for me to be see we want to know we're desired but often we're not clear that we're desirable people and so we want somebody to grant us that feeling you know rather than it's clear to me that I'm somebody who's worth choosing so what would I need to deal with in myself to be clear that I'm somebody worth choosing, worth desiring, worth loving, worth treating like an equal. Because that's what you have to really look at if you're going to really create an equal marriage. So those are some confrontational questions. Yes. And help you look at what you're what you yeah. don't want to deal with. Yeah, I could think I could see how that would be well. And now I'm going to have that conversation. Yeah. And I can already feel like the, holy crap, this is going to be scary. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But so good. At the the same good time. kind of scary. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's awesome. That's good yeah. guidance. Yeah. Anything else you want to share with people who are listening? Like any divine wisdom you want to impart on the masses? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I would just say having the courage to not resist what life teaches you. I would recommend that. I mean, part of living life well is tolerating what is mm-hmm. rather than what we wish it were. And having the courage to sort of move forward in the face of what is, which is often hard. Hard about us, hard about people that we love and wanted to have love us better than they are. And being able to see clearly is very important to living well, even though it's hard work. 
It sounds to me like you've learned that lesson. Oh, yeah. I see it all the time in just my own life and in working with clients that as painful as the truth is, you know, in the New Testament it says the truth sets you free. Uh-huh. I just think that it got edited out, the part that says, first the truth makes you miserable, then it sets you free. <laughs> first it sucks really bad, but after the sucky part, <laughs> it's then amazing. Then it sets you free if you're willing to deal with what the truth is. Embrace the suck. Yeah. yeah. And I have to say, you know, I think early in my life, thankfully, I made a commitment to myself that I would deal with what I believed was true, no matter how hard it was, no matter, you know, I would be honest with myself, even if it was really painful, because I just felt like that was the way to create a kind of stable foundation internally. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I've stayed pretty committed to that. And I think it's... Has that been difficult? Oh, it's very hard sometimes. It's very hard to see yourself. It's very hard to face, you know, people's unhappiness with you. It's hard to deal with how you take advantage or how you you know have are not loving or not that great to live with (laughs) and deal with it and say look I'm not going to be that person I'm not going to do that to this person that I love Um, and you start to create you know a really deep friendship because when you track that your partner will deal with their limitations for your benefit you know you're extremely lucky you know that they're a good person you trust them because it's good judgment to trust them you know, a lot of times people are trying to trust people that aren't trustworthy. Right. And they want to trust them because they want the security in it, but their mind is mapping that that person's not trustworthy and they're still trying to force something there that, that they can't, that right. they know isn't there. If this untrustworthy person would just trust me, then exactly. I can prove that I'm worthy of trust. Exactly. That's exactly right. And they put the locus on the other person rather than who they are. And so I think, you know, so when you are willing to submit to that process, you become, a, you've, become capable of being a good friend. You become capable of really loving. You become capable of seeing other people. You, you get more able to see who people really are and who's trustworthy and who isn't. You just get more perceptive because you know your own self-deceptions. You know, you see, you know, and I watch it in therapy when I help people see themselves. They often look like they hate me mm-hmm. because I'm sort of rupturing something that they've taken a sense of safety in. But... Oftentimes, people are saying to me after they've gone through that process, thank you so much. You know, like, it's I can't believe how much my life has transformed for the better because I'm dealing with what is. Because now I can see myself. I can see myself. I can see my partner. And we have a chance of, of now creating something worth wanting. Wow. Thank you You're so welcome. much for your time. This has been really informative and yeah. awesome. Yeah. So yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad it. we did it. Yeah. Thanks for carving that time for me. Sure. And good luck this week. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about how to strengthen your relationship, visit Dr. Finlayson Fife's website today and look for the two couples courses under the online courses tab. You can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website at www.finlayson-fife.com. To end this podcast episode, I'm going to read a short review of Dr. Finlayson Fife's online relationship courses. Quote, We just finished your two couples courses last week. They have been remarkably helpful to us. When my wife purchased them, I was skeptical. I just told her yesterday that this was the best money we've ever spent. Thank you so much for your insight and wisdom. Your work has made a huge difference in our marriage and we are grateful." Thanks for being here and thank you for listening.